Welcome to Stacey on the Right here on Family Vision Media. FamilyVisionMedia.org is the website. Visit us there. Check us out. And make sure and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Check us out. Family Vision Media. Right now, I'd like to welcome Dwayne Lester, a good friend of mine for over a decade now, Director of Issue Education at the Grassroots Leadership Academy. Dwayne, thanks for coming on. It is amazing to look at, uh, at where you're at today and to go back and look at all the people who we started with and, and to see where, where they are. And it's inspiring, honestly, to think about how we started uh, just as individual grassroots activists and how so many of us have grown up through the, uh, the movement. And, and what you're achieving in what you do is, is inspiring. So thanks for having me on. Oh, well, thank you for that kindness. I, I know we really did start off at the townhall.com media room at CPAC, all of us with our little laptops blogging away about CPAC and other places, mm-hmm. Grassroots Leadership Academy, um, conferences they threw, Americans for Prosperity, so many different organizations. And we would just, it was like three, four times a year, we'd see each other again, and we'd be sitting around eating our box lunches and blogging that was the the constant was we always had our laptops open we always had numerous charging stations chock full of chargers with phones and laptops and we had a really great time and back then we were doing it for the same reason we're working now which is to educate Americans and to activate Americans to participate in our processes and to be really grateful for what we have um and so i i noticed that you were on the road as usual um traveling across the country speaking about certain specific things. In fact, I attended one of your seminars at the Western Conservative Summit. About, I guess it's been six weeks or so. And we were really having what I felt like was a substantial conversation about how to talk to other people, but more importantly, how to listen to them. So you call this how to sell freedom without starting a fight. And I know I've been in my share of slap fights, maybe even within the last 72 hours. We, we won't discuss it. Um, but how do we do that? How do we sell freedom and, and do it without being mean? You know, I tell a story about um, a conversation I had with my brother. And I remember my brother was sitting in my, my mom and dad's living room. Uh, at this point, we're both, I was out of the Navy. He's out of college. We're living in different parts of the country. And we tend to see things through different lenses. He tends to see things through the lens of oppressor and oppressed. And I tend to see things through the lens of liberty and coercion. And I said, you know, I'm just going to go talk. I'm going to go talk politics with my brother. And it's going to be fun. And it's going to be pleasant and rational. And I'm just going to go do this. And I went and sat down and I, I started talking. And I'll bet you it wasn't. 20 minutes later, I'm, I realized that I'm yelling, I'm shouting, and my blood pressure is higher, my heart rate's up, the hackles are up on the back of my neck, you know, I could feel my face is flushed, and that haunts me to this day. Uh, it haunts me because I'm sitting here looking at someone, uh, and I think to myself, why am I yelling at someone that I love? And this is my brother, we grew up together, and I'm yelling at him. And I said, I can't, I can't do that anymore. I can't, this was years ago. And I, I've done my best to, to be more rational. But the more I thought about that, the more I kept reading. You know, I'm a constant reader, constant. And I started reading more books about sales, more books about how to sell ideas. And it dawned on me that one of the reasons why we fight so much about politics is that we have a very short-term focus right there. Um, when I was talking to my brother in that living room, my 
goal at that point was to win that argument at the expense of the relationship. And that's not the goal that I have. My goal is to have a good relationship with my brother. And if, you know, if, if it has to be different than that, I, I don't want it to be. I don't want it to be, I won that argument, but I don't have a brother anymore. And I started thinking about how can we do this? And I realized one of the biggest problems is, is, is because we're focused on winning that argument, that we are only listening deeply enough to respond to whatever the person said. And I, re- I was reminded of this by the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And a lot of people may hear that. It's a Stephen Covey classic. A lot of people hear that book and they just think, oh, it's a, just another self-help book. This is a masterpiece. It really is. And one of the first things he says is, you've got to listen to understand and then to be understood. And that corresponds so much with what I was reading about sales because the best sales people out there they don't come right at you with the the hard sale right out of the gate. The first thing they want to do is they want to know what you want. They want to know what you're after. And so I thought, if we can listen to understand, truly listen to understand, and we can find out where people are at, well, then maybe we can start selling freedom from that point. And so one of the first things I say to do is when you're talking with someone, and, and maybe politics comes up, that you need to stop yourself. And this is tough. I mean, you know this. This is tough to stop yourself from winning that argument and say, here's an opportunity. Here's a window. Be grateful that they open that window. Maybe you open it too, but be grateful that they're there in front of you. And now you're just going to listen to understand where they're at. And you're listening for different principles. So I don't know if you, you got there at the beginning of the, uh, the presentation, but one of the first things I have them do is write down all the principles that they feel are key to a free society. So if they can write down all these principles, then I have them recognize these are principles that are important to you. And when you're talking to someone, you want to listen for them to identify one of these principles on your list, because now you have the opportunity to create a shared vision. And when you can do that, then you can build a relationship. And then there are other steps after that, uh, that, that go into actually selling freedom. There's, it's actually a, a six step process. But that's really where it starts. And that can be the hardest thing <laughs> is just to sit and listen, because I feel like I'm, I'm rambling. So at any time, feel free to interrupt. But uh, well, no, I, I love that you're you're articulating this and you're starting off with, a, you know, a personal anecdote, which is very helpful in getting us to kind of back away from needing to win, because I, even though I've, I, I was at the presentation that you gave I agreed with it wholeheartedly. I felt like I learned a lot that day, especially with my worksheets. But my natural inclination is not to allow myself to lose on arguments where I know I hold the correct position and I also know all of the facts. So when you say, you know, you you have to resist the urge to to win, the immediate reaction is, uh, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to resist that urge. I'm going yeah. to win. I'm going to win this argument. But you're presenting the other side of it, which is, we want to win long-term. So the work that you're doing is to assist us in winning long-term, which may mean short-term. I don't get the satisfaction of sharing everything that I know, or maybe giving my perspective, you know, the full, the full bore, all of it. Maybe I'm just listening because you're, you're, you're talking about building relationships. So help, help us to understand what that looks like and what it sounds like. Yeah. When you said just now, I want to, I want to win this argument. Uh, I was reminded of 
the wisdom of one of America's national treasures, Thomas Sowell. And he he says there are three questions that you can ask to win any argument with a statist. Uh, and one of those questions is, at what cost? So when you said, I want to win this argument, I heard Thomas Sowell's voice in my head in that, that deep, rich timber, at what cost? You may win the argument, but you've now lost the ability to have a, a relationship and you've lost the ability to influence this person in the future. Because a lot of times winning that argument can be destructive. You were right, though, in, in what you said when you said you're talking about winning the long term. And it's really just a matter of reminding ourselves what the goal is. Uh, the goal is to win people towards a mindset of, of freedom that is less dependent on coercion, that respects the dignity of the individual and doesn't use uh, the, you know, the force of government to redistribute property or to do things in a destructive way. And that's, that can be a mindset that takes a long time to get past. But let's say that you, you're talking with someone and you recognize that in their positions, they have a, a, a strong belief in the dignity of the individual. I believe you have that same belief, don't you, Stacey? I do. I, I do. You know I yeah. believe in the individual. I believe in dignity. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where you can say, you know, step two is after you've listened to this person, then you identify the principle that you share. You know, it sounds like, Stacey, what you're saying is the dignity of the individual is something that's very important to you. And that's, that's important to me, too. And what I mean by when I say the dignity of, in, of the individual, it's that each individual is born with their own self-worth, with their own gifts, their own contributions that they want to make to society. Which is why as a father, I, you know, I've, I'm a father with, with nine kids, and I look at each one of my kids, and each one of my kids has their own personalities. They have their own strengths. They have their own gifts. And I want them to be able to use those gifts in society in the way that creates the most good for the most people, including themselves. And I think that's important to you, too, as well, isn't it? It is. <laughs> of course it is. See? Yeah, of course it is. And that's why I support a limited government that, that simply secures and defends the rights of the individual rather than, than takes from some and gives to others because of a perceived unfairness. When you take from one, you're limiting their ability to create as much good in the world as they want. Now, what I've done there is I've listened to you. I've listened to, and we've used a hypothetical conversation there, and I just brought up one principle. But I listen to you, I listen to understand, and there are four tools that I would recommend. And I'll come back to that. But then after I listened to you and I found a principle we shared, I stated that principle. After I stated that principle, I defined that principle, and I created credibility in that principle by saying, you know, I value the dignity of an individual because as a father with nine kids, that's my credibility. I don't have to say, you know, I value the dignity of the individual. And because of my Ph.D. in constitutional history, no, I don't need that. <laughs> my credibility comes from, from my kids, from being a father, from recognizing that I want my, my children to be treated as, as individuals, not part of a collective, not part of a, a voting block or, or, or anything else, not some, something other than their own unique individual. After I've created that credibility, then I'll create common ground. And that's as simple as saying, I believe you feel that's important too, don't you? And when they say yes, then you say, well, now I'm going to connect that principle to the policy that I support. 
That's why. It's that respect for the dignity of the individual. That's why I support a, a limited government that doesn't infringe on that person's rights for the benefit of the other. And it's here's the thing. When you, when you go through this, it's not going to be that simple. It, it simply isn't. There's going to be times when you're going through this and there's an objection. And when someone objects, you just look at them and you smile and you say, tell me more about that. And that's one of the four techniques that I talk about when I talk about listening and understand. When someone starts talking and people love to talk, I've demonstrated that on, on this, in this interview so far. When people are talking, just listen to them. And when they stop, you can do something as simple as mirroring. And that's just saying three to five words that they just said. Three to five words? Yeah, that's really all it takes. It's just saying three to five words, and the person will feel compelled to keep talking because you may have just repeated what they said, but in their mind, they're hearing a question. Hearing a question? You see what I'm doing? It, it's that simple. And I've, mm-hmm. you've seen me, you've probably seen me do this in that townhall.com uh, blog room. Somebody's, I remember sitting there, and you may not remember this, but I always took up a lot of real estate there because I had not only my laptop, but I had my my <laughs> microphones, I had my camera, I had my yes. mixer, and right, and it was like, a lot. This is the nerd, nerd with all the equipment, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, get off my real estate pile, I, I need this space. Um, and what would happen is, as I was sitting there, I remember this, uh, I got a tap on my shoulder, I was writing something um, for my website, I got a tap on the shoulder, and this, this nice woman standing there, and she said, would you like to do an interview with Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich? And I said, yes, I would. And he sat down, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I have nothing right now that I want to talk to this guy about. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything, but here's an opportunity. And so I got everything set up. I hit record. You know, I got the cameras rolling, hit record. I turned and said, Speaker, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Are you having a good conference? Yes. Tell me more about that. And he started talking, and I would just sit there and repeat the last three words he said. And I remember him turning to one of his uh, staffers there and said, that's, a, that's the best interview I've had in a long time. And I'm like, yeah, all I was doing is repeating what he said. So I'm sure he loved it. Um, <laughs> um, but that was that simple. So you can mirror them while you're listening and they'll keep talking. Another thing you can do is label what they just said. And that's simply putting a label on their words and the emotions behind it. So I might say something like, it sounds like the dignity of the individual is really important to you. And they'll keep talking. Yeah, it is. And let me tell you what else is important to me. They'll keep talking and they'll keep telling you more. And you listen because you're trying to find a place where you can work together. And another thing you can do, the third thing is I've already used it. Tell me more about that. Tell me more. Uh, That comes from a book called Getting More by Stuart Diamond, who I believe either founded or currently leads the Wharton School of Negotiation or the Negotiation School at the Wharton School of Business. So, he kind of knows what he's talking about, and I've used this. It's it's very simple. Tell me more, and they will. They'll keep talking. And then the final one that I that I love using is why is that important to you? You could use tell me more and why is that important to you to have an entire conversation with someone, and that's all you'd have to say. They start talking about, um, for example, I was at the Waffle House yesterday, and the cook there was talking with another customer and started talking about how much he believes that we need socialized medicine. And if he were talking with me, it wouldn't have been hard for me to say, why is that important to you? And he would have told me everything. And I could have said, well, tell me more, you know, this, 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 this. And I could have said, well, tell me more about that. 
and he would have talked. And I would have said, well, why is that important to you? And I could have learned everything there was to know about him. And out of learning what was important to him, I could have found a spot where we could have worked together. And that's key. You find the spot where you work together, you build that trust. The trust allows you to educate them later, and that education allows them to motivate to moving more towards freedom. And it takes a long time, but that's one of the biggest problems is we're impatient. Like you said, you want to win that argument right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe you get that uh, burst of dopamine in your brain, like, yeah, I showed them, but at what cost? And what I can guarantee we don't need in America right now is more division. We simply don't. Yeah, and there's there's something else that's kind of important about just lowering the temperature, I think. And all of the things that you've described today, in my opinion, they, if they feel like they lower the temperature, you can still talk, but you don't feel like any second one person is going to just haul off and hit the other. And that's important. It, it, it means something to us. So um, I, I would just recommend that people attend one of your one of your speaking engagements because it has just become so important to me to have another avenue by which I can have these conversations and and it will drive some people crazy because some people just really want to see a fight they're just waiting for some real life action like a reality television show and those people exist on the left and the right so some people mm-hmm. need to hear other people fight. I will sometimes have a very substantial conversation with a Democrat on the air, and then someone will eventually email me and say, well, I don't know why you were being so nice, or I don't know why you were coddling them. And I like to make the point that it's not about coddling. It's about having a conversation, because everyone we encounter is not going to automatically be on the right or hard on the left. Some people are in the middle, and they're only, in my opinion, Dwayne, they're in the middle because... They don't like the left. They don't like the right. They don't like what they're seeing. They know what they believe, but they don't want to affiliate themselves with angry people. So they sit in the middle and they sometimes, you know, lean over to the left more frequently because the left likes to use the language of emotions and feelings and they draw people into their bad ideas that way. So for us on the right, there's always a time where, you know, you you have to deliver the truth. There's there's always going to be an opportunity to drop the hammer But that's the rarity. The more frequent occasion is going to be the one you're describing where if you kind of put down your desire to win the argument and say, okay, well, tell me why you think the socialized medicine will actually work. And then ask them some questions about it to kind of lead them where you want them to go instead of telling them, well, here's why socialized medicine doesn't work. I mean, have you ever been to Canada? Do you see how many Canadians come to America for health insurance? They're probably operating off of the desire to see socialized medicine because of personal experience where they haven't had coverage and they live in America. So everything about this place is so great, except I just went through a huge medical problem that lasted months and months. And now I owe, you know, $300,000 to some hospital system and I didn't have coverage. And so how can that be here in America? We need socialized medicine and you need to lead them away from that. And arguing with them isn't going to do it because they have a very real experience that they're going off of, owing a whole lot of money to health insurers all over their area because they were sick. Um, and it really is tough. Health insurance, the socialized medicine aspect of it, to, to get people to understand that that doesn't actually solve anything, it's a real beast, but you're never going to do it if you're fighting with them. No, and there's more to how to sell freedom without starting a fight than I've actually been able to train. And at each time I've, I've finished this, I've, I've felt like, there's more I, I needed to say. And so I'm working on a, on a second, like a follow-up to this. And it deals with 
the fact that there's going to be times when you have to not argue so much, but you need to ask questions, like you just said. And it it stems from my training mentor. I've been working with uh, the, the godfather of trainers. His name is Bob Pike. And one of the things that he has taught that has been groundbreaking to me is that people do not argue with their own data. People will not argue with their own data. But if you tell them how things are, there's actually a psychological effect called the, the backfire effect, where people, it, when they hear facts presented to them that are counter than their beliefs, it challenges that cognitive bias that they have, and they can actually reject the facts and become more secure in their wrong position. So when you think about those two things, that there's the backfire effect and people don't argue with their own data, then you realize you can't be effective in winning people over by just shouting facts at them, by just saying, this is the way it is, this is the way it is. But instead, if you say, well, help me understand this and ask them a question, I've had more effect in getting people to argue with themselves than arguing with me. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was walking into the Antonin Scalia School Law School, and I'm walking into this school to talk to college Republicans. I believe that's who the group mostly was. It was a conservative audience about criminal justice reform, right? So I, I, here I am standing outside the Antonin Scalia Law School about to talk about criminal justice reform, and I could have not been feeling the imposter syndrome more as they stood there and said, I don't belong here. My degree's in horticulture. What am I going to teach these guys uh, about criminal justice reform? But I thought, you know, the biggest thing I thought was, these are, these are conservatives. And when, often when conservatives hear criminal justice reform, they hear soft on crime. And that's just the way it was. So I knew I was kind of hamstrung by that going in. So I said, how am I going to get them past that idea? And I remembered something that Milton Friedman said, who said, it, he said, it's more important to look at what a policy produces than what it promises. It's more important to look at what a policy produces than what it promises. And so I said, okay, I, I had a plan. I walked in and they're all in there and they're all uh, sitting there. And I said, okay, I want to start out real quick. I want you to put your hand in the air. If you feel that violent felons who have served their time and are released back into the community should have their Second Amendment rights taken from them for the rest of their lives. Violent felons, I'm talking violent, I'm not just saying run-of-the-mill felons, violent felons should have their Second Amendment rights taken from them for the rest of their lives. The hands went up, just as I expected. I, you know, I thought that. I said, now keep your hand in the air if you think gun control works. And the look on their eyes as they struggled with this, because they were starting to realize that the policy that they were advocating at the beginning, the policy was supposed to produce a safer society because violent felons would not have access to guns. But they also had to confront the fact that they know gun control is a joke. So as they sat there, I looked at them and I said, now let's look at what we're actually producing here. What we're producing with this policy is we are disarming felons who are released back into society who will obey the law. The law is you cannot have a gun. So these felons will not get a gun because they're law-abiding citizens. And if they're law-abiding citizens, doesn't that mean they don't pose a threat to society? So all this policy has actually done is disarm law-abiding citizens, hasn't it? 
and they sat there and they struggled with this because they're arguing with themselves, not with me. And then I said, if this policy is producing results counter to what we want, is it possible there are other policies that are doing that? Yes. I said, let's talk about some of those. And see, they didn't argue with me. They they were arguing with themselves, and people don't argue with their own data. So they had to square that circle somehow. And it wasn't because I walked in and said, look, it's wrong to disarm violent felons, because that would have went nowhere. But instead, I had them argue with themselves. And that's what asking questions can do. I repeatedly said across this country, questions are your answer. Questions are your best friend. Ask them and let the people figure these things out for themselves. You can only do that if you have credibility and a little bit of trust. And if you're arguing with this person all the time, they're not going to listen to you, and they're certainly not going to want to answer your questions. Well, and can I just say, so what are the statistics surrounding that? Like once people have gone to prison as violent felons and they've served their debt to society— do they then have a higher incidence of reoffending than nonviolent felons? I mean, what what are what are the numbers on that? Well, I don't I don't have those statistics right in front of me, but let's say they're extremely high. Let's assume that when violent felons get out, um, they reoffend. That's evidence to my argument, though. That's evidence to my position that this law is doing nothing. Can you imagine a situation where a violent felon is going to look at their colleagues and say, sorry, fellas, I can't go rob that bank with you because the law says I can't carry a gun. (laughs) Yeah, but people will say, oh, he was able to go and lawfully buy a firearm because he paid his debt to society and he had he received his right to, you know, a firearm back. So there's I guess there's always going to be something like that. Yeah, let's go back to Thomas Sowell with that. Uh, again, the, the man is a national treasure. One of he the is. things that he said that has had the biggest impact on me is he said there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. You're not going to find a solution that keeps the hands out of every person who wants to commit a crime with a gun. We know this. But what are the trade-offs? You know, and, and the biggest trade-off for me, I, I first started thinking about this because a friend of mine, who attends church, has, you know, kids, is a, is a member of society, a business owner, just a genuinely good person, told me one day, my house is completely defenseless because we can't have guns in my house. Because when he was 18, he made a mistake and ended up in prison. He's a completely different person now, but he can't have guns in his house. And he's like I said, he's turned his life around. He's a businessman, and he's got valuables. But he says, my house is completely defenseless. My wife can't even own a gun because it's not allowed in my house. What are the trade-offs? Are we disarming people who don't pose a threat to society, and is it right to violate their rights because we, we want to live in this false sense of security? No. So what are the trade-offs? And that's another problem that people need to realize, too. There's no solution. You're not going to put a policy in that's going to, that's going to benefit everyone and hurt no one uh, unless it's just respecting equal rights, just securing and defending the rights of the individual, showing them dignity. But a lot of policies don't want to do that. Nope. And the, the thing that we find ourselves doing is because we're not listening, because we're just reacting, because we're just memorizing our talking points and then, you know, basically beating people over the head with them, we don't realize that instead of trade-offs, we're really just fighting over the same things again and again and again. It's, we see this nationally right now, the, the control, gun control debate. Um, and the 
proof that's in the pudding that it doesn't work um, is that we had no good guy with a gun on the scene at Uvalde. Oh, wait, we did. We had law enforcement officers on the scene and they didn't do anything. So in the end, it would have been better to have had a, uh, you know, a Willet there, you know, the, the gentleman who saved all of those people um, when he was nearby at a church and he went in and, and you know, shot the, the shooter. It's, it would have been better to have had a good guy with a gun than to have had all that law enforcement at Uvalde. So the proof is anything we think might be the solution, depending on the situation, that solution can fail. So we can only just work, as you said, to advance individual liberty. I, this is this is the reason why you have these amazing seminars. So great. You know, one of the things that I, I love about these, when I, when I do these, and I just had this happen again in, in Vegas. It happened in Pennsylvania when I taught it there. It happened in Colorado. Um, there are a couple things that happen. One, I hear people in these breakouts and they say, um, I haven't been able to talk to my son in a couple of years. And that breaks my heart, you know, because I love each one of my kids. And I can't imagine not talking to them. But they said, I haven't been able to talk to my son in a couple of years, and I think these techniques are going to help me. Heard it it in Vegas. And I'm reading a book, another book that I highly recommend. It's by Arthur Brooks. It's called Love Thy Enemy. And in there, he talked about, in 2017, one in six Americans reported not talking to a relative because of the 2016 election. That's heartbreaking. One in six Americans. And I, I, I looked at that and I said, well, I wonder how bad it is now. And what I found, uh, statistics show that 60% of liberal Democrats have stopped talking politics with at least one person, and 45% of conservative Republicans have stopped talking politics with at least one person. And I remember, I think it was Mark Twain, may have been not Mark Twain, but I remember their quote being, um, clearly not Mark Twain, but uh, it was, the reason we can't talk to our friends and neighbors about religion and politics is because we've been taught for so long that you don't talk about religion and politics. We, we need to, and we need to do it in a way that, that creates relationships rather than fractures them. And we do that by listening first to understand, then to be understood. Well, today goes a long way in directing people how to get there. And I'm so excited for um, a future where I say, hmm, tell me more. Well, kind of biting my tongue a little yeah. because I have... <laughs> I have facts I want to share, but instead, tell me more. Or how do you come to that realization? What what makes you feel that way? Things like that actually do create relationships. And it'd be nice to see people that I know I disagree with politically. But when we see each other, we still can smile and actually genuinely enjoy each other's company. That would be nice. Yeah, I agree. It It is nice. It is. It, it takes such a load off. Um, one of the things Arthur Brooks talks about in Love Thy Enemy is just be grateful for them. And I'm, I'm grateful for everyone in my, in my trainings who argue with me. I just look at them and thank you. Thank you for helping me be better. Thank you for presenting me with, with objections I might not have heard. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to show both sides of this issue to the people who, who are in the room and on the fence. Thank you. Perfect. All right. Well, this is, a, I guess I'd call this installment number one in our ongoing conversation with Dwayne Lester on how to, oh, how can I get this perfectly? How to sell freedom without starting a fight, how to engage in the language of politics, and how to cultivate relationships, even with people who disagree with us politically. Dwayne Lester, Director of Issue Education at Grassroots Leadership Academy. Give us the website where we can find out more. 
Uh, just do a quick Google search for Americans for Prosperity Foundation or Grassroots Leadership Academy. <laughs> Perfect. And I'll put links to that in the show notes. If you're tuned in and you're driving down the street, don't worry. It'll all be there uh, at the show notes at stacyontheright.com, familyvisionmedia.org, and listen.stacyontheright.com. Hey, Dwayne, always good to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you again soon at some conference somewhere across this great country. See you then. Looking forward to it. <laughs> all right. You can find out more at familyvisionmedia.org. Have a blessed afternoon, everyone.